I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS, where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. In this episode, the Trade Guys unpack the administration's decision to label goods from Hong Kong as made in China. Plus, we'll break down what's happening with Kodak and medical supply chains. And the tariff man is back to pick a fight with his favorite nemesis, Canada. Stay tuned for all that and much more on this episode of The Trade Guys. Gentlemen, we've got a situation here in terms of Hong Kong. Now, products are going to be labeled made in China starting September 25th. What do you guys think? Well, in, under normal circumstances, if we had n- normal trade with all our partners, it wouldn't make a lot of difference in terms of both China and Hong Kong trade with the United States on an MFN basis. That is, they get normal trade terms, and the labeling will catch up. Labeling is a, is a federal law in terms of products being marked rule of origin. But Hong Kong has been treated as a separate customs territory for a very long time and joined the World Trade Organization as a separate customs territory and a separate economy. Uh, so this, this will require some changes from the, from the producer. But in our current uh, situation, the biggest impact is Hong Kong will be subject to some of the retaliatory tariffs that big China has faced over the course of this administration. So it's a confusing situation from an exchange standpoint on, on normal goods. It shouldn't be particularly disruptive and the package is going to say what it's going to say. In trade terms, it's not very much. I, as I recall, the, the volume of, of imports last year from stuff that actually was made in Hong Kong, as opposed to stuff that was made in China and transited, uh, was $471 million. So we haven't even reached the, the B word yet with respect to imports from Hong Kong. So I don't think it's going to have a huge impact in trade terms. It has a significant symbolic impact because it's a another statement by the U.S. government that Hong Kong isn't Hong Kong anymore. It's China, which I think was emphasized over the last couple of days when they raided Apple Daily and arrested one of the independent media tycoons in, in China. The interesting little uh, trade footnote is that Hong Kong is talking about taking us to the WTO over this change of status. And it'll be very interesting to see how far that gets. Uh, Hong Kong is actually a separate member of the WTO. They have their own ambassador there. This is one of the reasons why when you talk about the 164 members of the WTO, you don't talk about the 164 countries. Uh, then they're very careful about that. They talk about the 164 members. Hong Kong is a member, but uh, having being a member gives it rights. And having another country suddenly say, you know, we're not going to treat you as a separate entity anymore may give them recourse. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out. So really mostly symbolic, but we don't think it's going to have any real implication on trade policy. Not, not a large one, mostly because the trading relationship is small. Uh, where there will be a big impact, however, is on export controls, because Hong Kong was treated as if they were part of the UK when it came to export controls, and uh, will no longer. Treatment of Hong Kong will change when it comes to so-called dual-use technologies and other items that are controlled by that regime in the United States. The other impact... I think is going to be, now that we've started sanctioning people, 
and entities. You know, we sanctioned Carrie Lam, the Hong Kong executive, and and 10 others the other day for basically being complicit in the implementation of the new law. In a way, it's too bad. I mean, they're guilty because they're they're implementing the law. They're out there arresting people. On the other hand, uh, she had nothing to do with implementing the law. Nobody asked her about it. Uh, and the Hong Kong authorities weren't consulted about it. All these decisions were made in Beijing. And sanctioning the, the Hong Kong authorities, which at one level is justifiable, it doesn't do anything to change anybody's behavior because the people that did this terrible thing are somewhere else and they're untouched. But what is happening is that the banks and fi- financial institutions are starting to react because when you're sanctioned, then that means that uh, your assets are frozen and uh, entities that are doing business with the sanctioned parties, meaning banks where they have deposits or banks who have loaned the money, uh, suddenly are at risk. And what we're seeing is that uh, some U.S. banks, uh, Citigroup, for example, is already starting to close accounts for some of the individuals that have been sanctioned. And uh, investment banks who get a lot of their uh, Chinese revenue from stock sales, financing companies, and shareholders are beginning to be very nervous about what all this is going to mean. If, if the United States starts sanctioning more and more people, it's going to catch a whole bunch of financial institutions, both American ones and also European and Chinese ones, in this web of sanctions. So the other big news we have to discuss is that President Trump last Thursday signed an executive order requiring that certain essential drugs and medical supplies purchased by the federal government be manufactured domestically. And the Trump administration is saying that it's aimed at plugging gaps in the medical supply chain that have been revealed during the coronavirus crisis. Now, that seems perfectly reasonable. So what does the executive order actually do? Is it possible to bring all the drug manufacturing back to the U.S.? And would doing so create a more resilient supply chain and better access to drugs? Or does it really just disrupt our supply chains and lead to shortages and higher costs? What does that do for us? Well, I think the first thing is to look at the list because essential drugs and medical supplies covers a lot of territory uh, depending on how you define it. So that's the first question is what's actually on the list. The second question is how much government procurement is there of these items? So one of the interesting things about that almost never gets reported when it comes to this Buy America EO is it only covers what the government buys. Now, the government is a purchaser in this area. DHS purchases for stockpiling and a lot of medical supplies. So it doesn't cover what big pharma buys, is what you're saying? Well, it doesn't cover what is in the commercial market. What, it doesn't what cover you and what I you purchase. Buy. Yeah, it doesn't cover your, your purchases at CVS, okay, or wherever you get your pharmaceuticals or medical supplies. It doesn't cover what CVS purchases. It covers what's purchased by the federal government, which would be probably include most of the VA purchases. So it's not nothing. Okay, but there's also a lot of exceptions to the rule in terms of if the drug is not available or if there is a regulatory problem getting it, there are a number of carve-outs. So you start to look, first, how long the list is, second, how much is actually bought by the government, and third, how much what will wind up being covered by the exceptions, it probably doesn't amount to much. We'll know by the time people dig through this, but it may just be much ado about not much. Well, yeah. So if that's the case, is this kind of a toothless executive order? I mean, is this a lot about nothing? Well, the way to think about it is, look, particularly if you take pharmaceuticals and pharmaceutical ingredients, a lot of it is already made in the U.S., okay? But it's made where it's made 
partly because that's because of where the consumer demand and the industrial demand is for these items. Look, think of the pharmaceutical business as essentially the chemicals business. It's a very specialized part of the chemical business. But making chemicals is not like making shoes or apparel, which tends to be labor-intensive and so tends not to be in high-wage markets. In fact, the chemical industry is one because it's a high-capital market, it's a very sophisticated business, that tends to be done in the United States anyway. There's a lot of chemical production in the United States. Nearly a quarter of all pharmaceutical precursor ingredients are already made in the United States. So it's not like we're not part of this. So this has been policy by anecdote, which is a very frustrating way to try to respond. I'm sure the industry is terribly frustrated. I keep hearing you know, advocates pop up and scream, but nobody makes penicillin in the United States anymore. And the first thing I wanna say is, Well, what doctor prescribes penicillin in the United States? The answer for why there's no penicillin made in the United States is probably because it's very seldom prescribed here. It's prescribed a lot in the developing world. And so the facilities are close to the customer, which are not here anymore. Makes sense. I don't know when the last time you were prescribed penicillin for an infection. For me, it was when doctors still made house calls (laughs) and I was in single digits. When when you were four years old, right? Exactly. I was five, six years old, maybe. Last time I got a shot of penicillin. Oh, boy. But a quarter of the pharmaceuticals in the United States, a lot of people would say, well, that's not enough. That means that we rely on other countries for three quarters of the ingredients that go into our medicine. Which is true. But then you got to look where the other three quarters are produced. Many of them are in other countries with sophisticated chemical industries, like Europe, like Mexico. They tend to be produced where there is capital investment. No doubt some precursor ingredients are produced in China. Many final pharmaceutical products are produced in India. So it does include China. It does include the developing world. But the global model is such that nobody makes everything. Now, the key point for me is you asked the question on resilience. Resilience comes from sort of duplication of suppliers in your in your chain, and you have to look at it really at the firm level. If you have a single source supplier for a, a precursor ingredient or a finished pharmaceutical, it really doesn't matter where that supplier is. A sole source supplier is supply chain risk by its very nature. And so multiple suppliers first takes time and effort, and second, isn't free. So There's going to be an issue of how much more we're willing to pay for the pharmaceuticals we have in order to create what's true resilience in supply chain. But this is one of these areas that it gets very complicated. The solutions are all at the firm level. There's not a national policy solution for this at the industry level. So this is one where I think the administration would be better served to set objectives and then work with the knowledgeable industry to determine how to achieve the objective rather than just going off on a Buy America crusade that only affects government purchases and only affects those purchases with a number of exceptions. Two thoughts here. One, this is another lesson in that old adage, you know, if you mess with the market, there are consequences. And uh, what will happen over the long term if the government really presses the point and and insists that, that companies come back on shore, Scott's right, there are going to be costs. First of all, it'll be more expensive. One of the reasons they went offshore in the first place is cost. So bringing them back onshore is going to increase the cost. Now, you want to weigh that against resiliency. You want to weigh that against redundancy and security considerations. So it shouldn't be only a consideration of cost, but people should understand that if the government insists on on sort of comprehensive reshoring, uh, it's going to cost more. 
you also end up uh, inevitably, I think, depending on the product, and this is it's a firm level thing, like Scott said, with both uh, surpluses and shortages. You end up making too much of something, and you can only stockpile so much, and then you've got more than you need. We've got a lot of hydroxychloroquine right now. Yeah, right. right. No shortage of that. Well, that's actually, Andrew, that's that's an interesting point because one of the, the oddities about supply chain problems during COVID is that most times supply chain vulnerability is a supply side problem. In other words, you have a plant that's struck by lightning or flooded or part of your supply network goes away for some catastrophic reason. Okay. That's the usual problem. And that's what the supply chain managers plan for. Since COVID, almost all of the supply chain shocks have been on the demand side. Okay. Going back, what was the first one? Toilet paper. Well, toilet paper was a demand shock. We suddenly raised demand in the, in the household channel and, and lowered demand in the office and commercial channel. And they had different networks and different suppliers. Same thing happened in meat. We had a podcast on that. And that also happened in pharmaceuticals and medical supplies. It was a demand side shock, basically panic buying by governments and private entities all over the world. And so that's a different kind of problem and will require a different kind of adjustment by supply chain. So this is much more complicated. But what's odd to me is, you know, despite the worldwide pandemic, we didn't really have supply side shocks. These were all demand side. And once buying goes back to normal, uh, it's hard to predict when the next wave ought to happen and what, what it'll happen in. Well, I think there's going to be a new normal, too. One of the things that the uh, Scholl chair actually is undertaking right now is a look at pharmaceutical and medical equipment supply chains. And we're going to be looking at the concept that you'll probably be hearing about increasingly, which is the concept of a trusted partner. Uh, that is, you don't have to bring everything back into the lower 48. Uh, or even the 50, you can have reliable sources of supply somewhere else. Part of what the administration is saying is that uh, they don't regard China as a reliable source of supply. Uh, and there's some evidence for that. The Chinese have demonstrated over 30 years, 40 years actually, a willingness to cut off supplies for strategic or political reasons of their own. That makes them by definition questionable reliability. But recalling back when I was working on, on investment-related issues and CFIUS-related issues, this would come up when a foreign company wanted to acquire an American entity. And the question we always asked the Pentagon was, well, they're going to buy this company that makes stuff that you need. Do you care? And the Pentagon's answer would be, well, yes, we care. No, we don't care. And, uh, and, the, and if they said, well, yes, we care, then the second question was, well, can you get it somewhere else? And the Pentagon's analysis was, can we get it from a reliable source? And the reliable source was not just domestic. Reliable source was an ally. Can we get it from the UK? Can we get it from the Japanese? Can we get it from somebody that we have a relationship with where we're confident that we're going to be able to uh, operate under normal market principles and get what we need? And I think what's going to come out of all this now is a realization that that's probably the best way to go in the future. It's not just about reshoring. It's about finding uh, safe and secure places to produce where you know you're going to be able to get what you need. That, which is particularly important in this industry because it's so innovation driven. And innovation happens on a global basis in medical supplies and pharmaceuticals. So if you try to reshore the whole supply chain, you cut yourself off from a better future and a healthier future, which is the wrong thing to do. So speaking of reshoring, 
we can't let this podcast go by without talking about the Kodak deal. Now, I'm just back from Rochester, as you guys know, because I drove up and back over the last couple of days to move my son into the dorm. He's a sophomore at University of Rochester where he plays football, which is why he's there so early. And their season's canceled, but they are training. And I was up in Rochester and a Paul is hanging over Rochester because Kodak had a great deal to resurrect. Kodak, of course, was once, you know, the Google of its time, 145,000 jobs worldwide. And a couple of weeks ago, it was announced that there was a, I think it was a $749 million deal that was going to Kodak to do pharmaceutical ingredients, right? Here in America, in upstate New York, in Rochester, which was going to provide 300 jobs in Rochester right away. Uh, about 80 jobs in Minnesota, where they also have a, a, a plant. And as Scott will tell you, you know, Eastman Kodak was set up to do chemicals for a really long time. Well, something happened and the deal is not quite going through the way everybody wanted it to go through. So what's going on? Well, this was an action under authorities of the Defense Procurement Act by the administration to DPA. essentially create the, this opportunity, this deal. We're not sure exactly what happened. It is correct to point out that Kodak, the film business, is the chemicals business. In other words, the magic of both photography in the day, film photography, and film processing is basically chemicals on a substrate. And so there, there is a knowledge base and a capability uh, within Eastman Kodak and its assets and its IP pool to expect them to succeed in, in fine chemistry because it was an area of expertise before. So that part is not really the problem. What seemed to happen is that the announcement or the the rumors before the announcement of this caused sharp moves in the stock price. And there were some executive insider trading. We don't know much about it at this point. It could have been planned trades or what, what are called limit orders. If you're a longtime employee and you have, say, uh, stock options uh, in your past, you may have placed a limit order five years ago with a broker. And when the stock went up, all of a sudden the the option was exercised. So options do trade like that. It may have been without malice. It may have been without insider information. Nobody knows. But at this point, the Securities and Exchange Commission has asked to review it. And so there's a stop to the whole process, which resulted in, I think, a 30% decline in the value of Kodak shares Monday and Tuesday of this week. So it's kind of a mess right at the moment. First, they'll probably sort through it. Second, I'm, I'm not going to accuse anybody of doing anything illegal or, or even unethical until, you know, we have evidence to demonstrate that. And there's none at this point. But it does make a mess, a big enough mess that the White House kind of distances itself from the project for the time being. Certainly seems like a shame. Well, we'll see where it ends up. You know, it's one of these things. There's reason to believe that the company can succeed in the space. And uh, we just see what happens. You know, nobody knows at this point. Okay. Well, moving on to something we do know a little bit about, what are we doing with Canada? We've reissued tariffs on Canadian aluminum. How is that even possible? Didn't we just sign a big deal with the Canadians? It's called USMACA. One would think we're bullying them again. This has been a source of frustration because this is at the request of just two companies. Most of the U.S. aluminum industry does not support this and have said so. And there are two companies that are in a different situation and they've pressed the administration to do it. And I think the Canadians are understandably upset. They're going to retaliate. The agreement, there was a special deal cut on this that in, in return for lifting the, the tariffs, because remember, these are 
global tariffs that were designed to deal with Chinese overcapacity. So Canada's not the problem. The Chinese are the problem. And then everything spills over from that. But we're taking it out now on the Canadians. What the Canadians agreed to in, in USMACA, as you said it, was that if we do what we did and they decide to retaliate, they have to retaliate on aluminum products. And so they have promptly come up dollar for dollar, something two point something billion dollars, I think, of retaliation on wheel rims and a variety of other things coming from the United States, which is going to hurt the downstream part of the industry, people who make stuff out of aluminum. I mean, it's sort of a lose-lose strategy. I don't understand why he's doing it for two companies. Well, you know, it's, it's a little bit of a branding for, for the president in an election year. This is, this is kind of who he is, and it reminds people that he's tariff man. But this is a silly place to do it. And not just that it's a couple of companies out of a very large industry. It's that this particular industry is highly integrated on a North American basis. All right, if you look at the way aluminum is produced from bauxite all the way to the finished product, it is already integrated. It is the, the companies operate on both sides of the border. Frankly, bauxite is turned into aluminum mostly in Quebec because of hydropower, cheap electricity. It takes tremendous energy to turn bauxite into aluminum. And the hydropower in Quebec is the cheapest in North America, so it gets done there. And that's very important to the U.S. part of the industry. But it's already integrated. And, and the thing is, it's um, borderline vandalism, okay? Not just had an agreement with Canada about integration. We have an industry that has been integrated for a very long period of time. And we're making life miserable within the industry and winding up with higher costs with consumers, both from the tariffs themselves and the retaliation. It's hard to explain. It's, you know. Well, finally, Jack would be really bummed if we don't talk about the U.S. trade numbers. Now, the trade deficit narrowed in June as imports and exports rose. What does the U.S. trade data reveal about our country's economic footing? Well, I think overall, this is a good news story about economic recovery. Uh, if you look at the rebound in June versus uh, May, which is a good thing. And what it really, because trade cratered early in the year, mostly based on the rapid decline in aggregate demand. And this, I think the best part of this story is that it's tangible evidence that the economy is recovering in some important sectors. By the way, same thing's happening in China. Chinese exports improved dramatically month on month in roughly the same time period, mostly to places other than the United States, uh, the ASEAN nations being the the biggest increase of exports from China to a destination. But all of it says is the world economy is getting better post-COVID. And so at the moment, I'll take it as a sign of improving uh, conditions overall. Bill? I think that's right. I mean, it, we're still behind. Last year, we're behind probably the last several years. But, you know, looking at it month to month, clearly it's, a, it's an uptick and that's a good thing. The question, of course, is whether it'll be sustained and will continue to grow which will depend a little bit on the, the nature and pace of recovery here. There's been a debate about, you know, which character on the typewriter or, or, or which letter of the alphabet is the recovery going to look like? Uh, you know, U, V, W, L, Nike swoosh, checkmark, reverse checkmark. The point is that, one, uh, we could go back down again if we have to start shutting down the economy again because of continued outbreaks. I think that's less likely than the other not so good alternative, which is we recover, but we recover back to a level that is lower than where we had been before all this started. So 
this goes back to the question of, you know, getting back to normal. You know, we're going to get back to a new normal. And the new normal may not be, you know, three point whatever it was percent unemployment. And it may not be the same rate of GDP growth that we had before. It, it may simply be slower for a prolonged period. We'll have to wait and see. Well, guys, this has been on that happy note. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, this has been a session packed with information. Some happy, some not so happy. So we'll see you next week right here. Same place. We're still at home in Bethesda on The Trade Guys. And there'll be more news between now and then, I'm sure. Guaranteed something strange will happen. It's the safest prediction we've made in months. (laughs) To our listeners... If you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to the Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.